In this episode of Multi New Media, we're going to be looking at serverless computing. Whether you're using Azure Functions, AWS Lambda, or GCP's Cloud Functions, or if you're like me and have no idea what's going on, this episode is for you. I'm Chris Ayers, a systems architect and principal consultant. And I'm Chase Raz, a university instructor and corporate trainer, and we're Multi New Media, your business technology advisors. This is Multinew Media. So Chase, what do you know about serverless computing? Oh, I, I feel like this is going to be a <laughs> quiz that I'm not ready for. Um, look, let, let, let me, before I give you any BS, I want to try How many, answer. Okay, here, hold on. Here's a trick question. How many servers are involved <laughs> with serverless computing? Many, many. I know that. It's just not ours. It's not our server. It's, it's not zero. <laughs> it's not zero. It doesn't mean there's no <laughs> server involved. It's uh, typically we're relying on a cloud uh, service. I know that much, right? My my, okay. un- my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong. Let me just put it out there. Let me, let me, I'm not, so for anyone listening, I'm not playing dumb here. I really am not the expert in this field. This is something I'm moving more into for functional reasons um, and, and to accomplish, um, uh, to accomplish a couple of tasks I need to get done. But my understanding is we're essentially offloading some type of programming function onto a remote server that gets triggered to run under whether it's scheduled, whether it's some API kicks it off, whether something kicks it off. And then that function simply runs for us without us having to provision a VPS or a whole cloud infrastructure. Am I in the ballpark? Yeah, you are. Oh, man, um, <laughs> I'm relieved right now. Yeah, and one of the biggest thing is you don't care about the servers. That's the one of the biggest draws of serverless. You you just don't care anymore. You you don't care usually what OS it is. You don't care if you have one of them or ten of them or if they're they're backed up and redundant. Somebody out there in the internet, they're taking care of that for me. I don't have to deal with it. it. Well, that makes me feel a lot better because one thing is I keep hearing this term. And as I mentioned, I'm moving into it for reasons of education and for corporate training. But I, Chris, I'm having some trouble of understanding why, you know, the average business or maybe even a tech startup for for all we know, why businesses particularly care that this whole thing is going on in the IT space. Well, there's a ton of advantages for businesses to look at serverless in, in some of their development and some of their testing and some of their applications. There's there's a couple of downsides, maybe performance, but there's so many advantages. It's, it's definitely important to look at serverless as another arrow in your quiver or another tool in your, your, your tool belt. Um, I'm trying to think of a third one so I can get like the buzzword <laughs> bingo. Round it uh, out. Like um, line. You know, should we put a little buzzword? B- <laughs> this is completely unplanned here. Should we put a buzzword bingo? Should, should serverless be our, our buzzword bingo? Every time we say it, we have to, I don't know. I, I don't have any alcohol in front of me. What, sh- what should we do? Uh, I don't know, but, but businesses definitely want to take a look at this and, and there, there's, uh, maybe three or four points that we can build on that all back this idea that there's there's great business benefits. One, there's no management. You, you really don't have to manage servers. You don't have to worry about 
redundancy and backups and that's an advantage right there. So you have time and, and, and money and maybe even training or or uh, user resources that you don't have to spend on that. Uh, there's scaling, which, which we'll go into more. So it can scale from one to hundreds to thousands. You don't really care. And there, there's automatic high availability. So there's redundancy built in and you don't have to worry about that. And the, the final reason that I, I kind of like as developer is um, it's very quick time to market. Uh, the code that I write locally, there's no need to set up infrastructure or, or plumbing or all this stuff. It's very quick to test it locally and then push it up to the cloud and start executing it. So we can break those down and go into them in a little bit more depth, but that's a good starting point. Just going through those almost systematically would probably help me and other business people out there. And I, I like where you started the not having to manage servers. That doesn't mean you don't have an admin or a DevOps person of some kind. And that's what I was going to ask. Does this help reduce labor in any way or does it shift what the labor is doing or, or what happens? It, it definitely can. Uh, you don't need to have somebody spin, a spin up a virtual machine, uh, apply OS updates, have some sort of deployment pipeline to take your tool or your software or your whatever and put it onto the machine, lock it down, secure it, open up. Like there's so many things you don't really have to worry about that many steps. You sound like um, me when I described to businesses why they want to stop running the email server in their back closet. So, <laughs> fine, the email server in the back closet. What happens if it crashes? Do you have a backup? Do you have a secondary one that will just spin up instantly and handle requests? Did you... Uh, set up a load balancer with, with failover or what if the East data center goes down? Do you have a central one or a West Coast one? You don't have to worry about any of that. You take your function code and you, you usually it's like a zip file or maybe a jar file or, you know, some some collection of files. You can even be like a Git repo or or something. You tell the function host that you want to deploy code and you upload it and it's there ready to run. You don't care if it's an East or Central or whatever. You don't care if there's a backup or a not. As if one goes down, it'll spin up another one and it'll just run. If you get loaded with uh, requests, it'll spin up 10 more. There are all those capabilities built in and you don't have to spend any overhead worrying about it or handling it or planning it. I'm sure what I'm going to ask you next and uh, sorry that I'm going to be throwing a lot of questions in here, but oh, I'm sure please. you have this planned out for later, but I'm going to almost beg and plead here if we could move this, yeah. the answer to this question here. What are some examples of if if I'm just any given business, let's assume the core business functionality of what we need to do, exchange documents, um, have email, um, run a website, all of these types of things that almost every single business needs to do. What type of stuff would we even consider moving to serverless? But what are most businesses going to be moving to a serverless uh, environment? So there's a wide range of things you would move to serverless, and there's a wide range of things you would not move to serverless. Serverless functions, whether they're on Azure or AWS or Google, pretty much are small little pieces of code that run for at no more than five minutes usually. Like if it hits five minutes, it, it kills the process off. It's usually small chunks of work. And the functions, they can talk to databases or something else, but they don't really store a lot on the server. So they're, they're pretty stateless usually. Uh, one of the things people might do is, oh, uh, a file uploader. You've uploaded a file. 
the function might take your little file and make sure it's the right size, square it up, and then put it in a, a server somewhere. It might be a click handler for uh, I would like to know more. And you put in your email address and it just gets shipped off to the function. It formalizes the data and puts it in a database. It could be backend processing. You need to batch process a lot of things and it takes time. So you don't care if it maybe runs at night on uh, lower cost function resources so that you're not paying the premium like right in the middle of high traffic price. You're paying off uh, off hours uh, server prices. And so you it fires up a function and maybe does a database query, does some data and sends out an email or ships it to a different database or a file system or maybe runs a report. There's lots of little things that you can use functions for. Uh, IoT or, or chatbots even. Uh, chatbots can, you, you send it a message like, I would like to order 10 of these. And maybe your little function goes and checks inventory and sends a response back. Sorry, we only have five. So each time this is that's really where I'm starting to get into serverless functions is for things like Alexa skills or some of the other assistants. Now, is that function being spun up every single time somebody interacts or because there's not a persistent state, you said? So correct. that's the difference between a virtual machine and a serverless uh, function. A virtual machine, like spinning up a virtual machine might take a couple of minutes. A serverless function will create an instance of the function and execute it in milliseconds or seconds time frame. Now, the difference is, and a little technical here, maybe in the back end that they have your functions running on one machine. If your site suddenly gets slammed and you now have 10 or 20 times the normal traffic, this is where one of the downsides is. If you're just running on one machine and it needs to start scaling out to others, there might be a small delay as it it spins up your functions on other machines, but then it can pretty much scale almost infinitely to handle the load. And this is where some of the pricing comes in. You usually only get charged for the resources you use. So instead of a normal application server where I've spun up a VM, so I'm using storage for the whole operating system and the virtual machine and the spare disk space and my code, and I'm charged for the disk space, I'm charged for the CPU running all the time, waiting, listening for something to happen. So in serverless, I might get charged a penny for every thousand requests. Because so it's my- not a per request per call model. And again, I know we're not trying to get into the different providers that are out there. We have mentioned some of those, your, your big cloud platforms, essentially, plus a few others. But um, a lot of these, to my understanding, are billing like by the millisecond or tens or hundreds of milliseconds at most. Right. So you can run a completely fast function of, let's say, every time you upload a file to your WordPress site, you want X, Y or Z to happen. And it's just a real quick process. You're being billed by the fraction of the second, correct? It really can depend. It could be a time. It could be how many times it gets called. Um, it, it really, yeah, execution time. So I imagine it could be based think, on resource utilization as well of how much processing power, how much memory. Right. I'm looking at one site that's charging 20 cents for uh, 1 million executions. 
so 20 cents for 1 million executions. Let's put this back in business terms for a moment, because for a developer, I'm sure that makes sense. But does that mean 1 million requests to my chatbot if if that's what it is? Or does that mean, you know, 1 million subfractions of my chatbot thinking about things? You get a grant of so much uh, gigabyte seconds. And like you're, you're probably going to be charged. I'm looking at one example where they're trying to break it down where you've you've used like a 1.1 million calls and you had like a small amount of data resource and it charged them $17. Um, and so their total cost was like $17 for, for multiple millions of things with data and transfer and all of that. And I'm thinking about the licensing costs for a virtual machine. I'm thinking about the licensing costs for um, – software and then the, the oh, charges absolutely. for the CPU and everything. And, and they even out. Uh, oh, you oh, actually can yeah. save quite a bit of money going with the serverless um, model. You know, one of, one of the few places in the technical world where people may know me from is being an informal advocate for LightSail, which is Amazon's quick, you know, little VPS solution. It's sort of within their cloud. It's sort of not. But I'm even comparing that to running a VPS, a virtual private server. And if you have a VPS and you start getting slammed, let's say, around a certain time of year for registrations or bookings or whatever the case is, whatever slams your site, as you do that, if you're going to kick up multiple VPS instances, you've got to have them and then a load balancer on top. And and you can end up spending you know more than just getting a more powerful VPS or a more powerful cloud instance. So I, I well, love that pricing model. Yeah, and you don't even have to think about it. If it just it scales on how often your stuff is called. Even AWS has a free tier where you get a million. Uh, yeah, this seems very consistent with with Azure, where you get one million requests per month and four hundred thousand gigabyte seconds of compute time. I'm still so it, a little unclear though. The talking, so I understand when they're talking about compute time, but for those of these that are calculating in terms of requests. I don't know how to define that because I'm almost thinking like an API, an application programming interface. Is yeah. that is that request the entire session is a request or each no. transmission to it is a request? Each transmission to it. Okay, so that makes more sense. Every time, you know, every time somebody logs into Facebook and hits your bot, every time you send an email and you want it to automatically archive, every time whatever that thing is happens, that's the request. Right. It could even be every interaction with an Alexa bot. So not just saying, you know, launch this, it might be launch this. Okay. Do this other thing, do this other thing. That would be like three or four right. requests. So there can be, it's not just going to be tied to each user. So if a user, um, on, uh, Alexa triggers a skill that could be a good handful of, of requests. Right. Okay. But in your example before, you know, I need to spin up uh, multiple hosts. I need to spin up a load balancer. I need to do all this stuff. You really don't have to worry about that. Um, the functions, yes, you can have them triggered by a time frame so that it goes and checks a database every hour and sums up all the uh, orders that were placed and generates a report. It could be based on, oh, somebody uploaded a file, go transform the file for the web, make you know thumbnails of it, 
and put them in this other directory. It could be when someone hits this web endpoint so that you have a link or an image on a web page. And when it loads, that triggers the function to go and make an ad profile on that user. Oh, I'm getting all sorts of nefarious marketing ideas right now. You've got, you're going to have to stop that list. I'm, I'm getting dangerous over here. But th- that's <laughs> that, that's what I'm saying. The, but these are it. some of the use cases of, of serverless that have direct business applications or or that have come from from these thoughts. So before talking about scaling a little bit more, when, when you're when you're mentioning these use cases, some of these seem to overlap with things like if this, then that or Microsoft Flow um, and a couple of other services out there. Um, what's the advantage of taking the larger technical leap and going serverless? Is there is there a level of control or? Well, think about it. If I'm a developer and instead of go write this huge, big Web page, it maybe is, hey, I need a function that pulls these records from the database and sends out this this link or sends out this report. Like all they're doing is this one little call. They can test that one little call and you just push it up. Um, hey, I need somebody to when I hit this thing, it sends back an ID and logs it in a database or logs it in a table somewhere. One of the things I've seen is they use the cognitive services. So Azure and AWS and, and Google all have um, AI functionality where you can send text to the AI service and get back like a sentiment value. Are they happy? Are they sad? Yeah, yeah. So I have a student who was function. doing that on Reddit. <laughs> yeah, you can have a function, let's say, that gets triggered on a new Yelp review and sends it off for cognitive services and, and gets back the sentiment sentiment is, are they happy are they sad did they have a good experience and then maybe send you an email automatically if it was a bad one I, I love that because I have heard of a, and you know I've wondered from the the marketing hat that I sometimes wear I've wondered because I've heard of companies that are doing that they're integrating um, with Twitter they do you, they do it with exactly. Twitter. They, yeah, yeah they look at the sentiment and they automatically flag a customer support representative to get in touch with the person if there's a negative sentiment that's just popped out there in the world. And a lot of these these functions have they, they support multiple languages, so you can get developers of any type. And they have hooks. So we we talked about Slack and Teams. Some of these have hooks where when something happens, they can post a message into Slack or Teams very easily. Uh, and yeah. so you can get instant notifications hey, this is a thing. Or you can send a message to it and it'll fire off a function to go do the thing that you invoked through Slack. Back in episode 101, right? We, yeah, we talked about multi-tenancy and Slack and Teams and all of that. Interesting. Yeah. So this gets this can get rather complex. Um, and if there are, of course, some questions I'm going to ask about that from the business point of view uh, moving on. But I almost think for... Um, you know, for that topic of not having to manage servers and the use cases, I think that's making sense to me now. So what about some of these other issues like scaling? Well, we, and- we talked a little bit about scaling. This is where you don't care. You don't know or care if it's running on one server or a hundred or a thousand. That's what serverless is. You are letting the provider handle that. None of um, that overhead, none of the operating system licenses. Right. And so this is where 
I think they have some cases where you can pay a little bit extra to reserve. Like, hey, I'm I'm planning on a lot to come in at, at this time period or this day, but that's where there's there could be that little um, delay in in spinning up some of the extra requests. Let's say you do a big marketing campaign and you don't think about it. You just send it out and your normal thousand email responses a day jumps to 50,000. Now, if you were doing this in a normal infrastructure, you would be like, oh, I need to spin up another server, need to do the load balancer, just like you, you described earlier. In serverless, you really don't have to do anything. It's just all done for you. And, you know, that that builds on something I, I, I heard the other day, and I don't know if this is exactly true, but a lot of um, these cloud services and, and who I heard about was Microsoft, that they're potentially using um, Unix systems behind the scenes that are doing all the provisioning for all the Windows systems and Linux and all of that. Oh, yeah, they, they use they use Linux. And, uh, and I thought that was rather of clever. Of, they're using Linux to provision Windows and Linux servers. And I mean, you know, at some point well, from, they had to go to Linux for for a lot of pieces of Azure run on service fabric, um, technically. And then they use a lot of containers and Linux. And a lot of Linux hosts only run on Linux VMs because of the way like Docker and Kubernetes work. Um, and those are the things we don't want to have to worry about with serverless, right? Exactly. Yeah. But they, they, they recently uh, released their own Linux distribution. Microsoft did? Yeah. Awesome. I'm going to have to try that. Uh, it, it's more for IoT stuff to oh, yeah, uh, no, I did try to that. lock down and secure IoT devices. And even at Build, they they announced partnerships with with places where you could get like IoT cameras, and but that's a whole different topic. Absolutely. So back with serverless, I when somebody's looking at growing their business, growing their IT, they're hearing all these things that serverless functions can do for them. There are two questions that I think are going to help people the most. And I'm going to go in reverse order with them. So the first one is the the lesser uh, of the two from the business mindset. But it's this. What languages are we talking about here? Because I think even every business person knows if you want to build for the web, you're looking at HTML and CSS and JavaScript. If you want to build a native application, you're looking at some variant of the C language or maybe Java. What what languages are we talking about in terms of what language do you want to code in? Well, is it that open? Can I find almost any developer out there who, uh, you know, focuses on any language and they would be able to write serverless code? They have Java. They have uh, Node.js, so JavaScript stuff. They have Go. They have .NET. They have Python, uh, Java. So there's there's quite a bit of of support with different languages and, and different capabilities. But they all can pretty much do the exact same type of uh, development. Well, that helps and leads me into that second question, which is actually the most important. So assuming this role of the entrepreneur or the, the person who's trying to steer the ship, whether I've come out of IT or not, how do I get into this if I'm not the person programming it? You know, in, in, in business, a lot of times our management and leadership positions are all about steering people. But when we don't have those people, the big question is, who do I call? Who do I talk to? How do I get going on this? Is it a big consulting firm like like you work for? Is it independent developers? What's It could be both. I think it could be both. It could be an independent developer. It could be a big consulting firm. And it could be a smaller medium shop. But what I think the advantage here is, which was the kind of the fourth advantage I talked about earlier, the developer support, it's because 
you don't have to have a big environment or a big framework or a big server farm or anything to have somebody go develop something. You can pretty much say, hey, I need a function to do this. Or, hey, I really want to, um, when people tweet us, I want to have it email me the sentiment if it's bad. Something like that. And you can have a conversation about these things. They might recommend a platform. Like you said, all the big ones do this. There, there's, it's very easy to get some sort of Lambda functions, Google app engine. Just, I need to do this thing. It, it's very easy to take a function package and load it up there. The, the quick starts on any of the services are super fast to get something spun up. And the, the major advantage for business on that is you don't have to go worry about buying a big server or configuring all this networking stuff. A lot of times you can just get a link. Hey, I, I've deployed your function to the internet. Here's the link you use to access it. Just put this on your web page. That's see. That's what uh, I click love. Click a link, or put this in the web page around an image, something like that. So this Done. could even be used by, let's say, somebody using a WordPress or a Squarespace site, and they don't have a lot of room to grow custom. Uh, I mean, right. I guess on WordPress, maybe you'd have a little bit more. But if you're on one of these hosting platforms where you don't have a lot of custom growth opportunity, it is the way it's designed to work. You could essentially start doing some serverless and adding links in and embedding forms and whatever else you need. Yeah. You know, with with my VPS work, the the overarching purpose is to take people who were in traditional web hosts like I had been for decades and say, how do we start moving into the cloud? And the VPS, a VPS is one option. But I really love this option because it opens up this ability to fail fast because you can just go spin up whatever service you need on Squarespace or wherever the hell else you want. And then at the same time, as you outgrow that service, you can pick up piece by piece by piece. What is the specific thing we need and develop only for that, cutting out the cost of all of that equipment, cutting out the development time of, as you like to pick on me about reinventing the wheel, we can remove all of that on the business side with this type of stuff. If we just know to talk to our developers about it and ask, does this make sense for this case or for us to start brainstorming? And I, I really see a lot of this for marketing automation. Chris, what do you see? What do you see people using this for uh, in your work? Um, I've seen it uh, a lot with triggering things so like end of day processing we can have scheduled tasks to do it or uh, we need to send a report so hey we just have a function that triggers talks to the database sends out an email uh, we've had it for scheduled tasks we've had it for little small chunks of things uh, the iot work uh, cleaning up a database processing messages there's a lot of of, of use cases and just because they're existing use cases doesn't mean it's the use case that that maybe you need to do it might be that you have a different use case that you find that works great for you the other um, really nice point I, I thought you had made was you can spin up a website anywhere and link to this function and if you need to change your web host you can still call it it, you don't have to go through all this this work of moving around servers and stuff. It's just a link or it, it's an FTP site or it's a database that 
that can cause these triggers to happen. I just, I feel, I feel the business people sort of melting in their chairs going, wait, wait, wait. So you mean we don't have to, in a good way, by the way, we don't have to lose and sink all of this money. Every time we switch platforms, we have to get off of XYZ hosting or, or so-and-so servers. And we can still, if we've, if we've built out this way, we can still use everything that's in Azure and AWS and GCP and everywhere else, right? You, we can still keep that investment and that part of it doesn't break. And I just feel this cumulative sigh of relief from the business world finally of not having, hopefully, you know, knock on wood, not having to hear, oh, well, we're going to have to rebuild that from the ground up if you're, if you're going to take it off of the server, you know, it's hardwired in. And, and I guess it's uh, sort of the end of those days, luckily. I keep telling you, and I've said it before, I like building Legos. I don't like melting down plastic to make my own. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to piece them together. I want to take uh, great chunks of functionality and, and assemble them into something even better. I read something recently about that that was talking about the two different um, – and of course they were being – um, simplistic like that, talking about only two, but the two different modes of programming. One is I want to play Legos and they put it exactly in your words like that. <laughs> and the other, the other was, damn it, this thing's not good enough. I want to make it perfect. And, um, business well, that, people, we tend I, to I, fall on the other side. Sometimes we, we want it too perfect or we, we expect that of other people. I, uh, I've kind of acknowledged that nothing is perfect. Um, and I try to keep the Lego intact as long as I can. Um, if the, the pegs and the holes don't line up, that's really the only time I really want to open the box and look at what's inside and, and see how, see how the sausage is, uh, is made. Yeah. Usually I'm fine with just, uh, adjusting my plan to figure out how to make everything fit. You're going to have to kind of go along on the uh, ride with me here for a moment because speaking of Legos, I have a Lego on my keychain and it's related to this topic. I had no idea I was going to bring this up today. Um, <laughs> a, a couple of years back, I, I saw this Lego keychain and I bought it with that in mind of, look, things change over time. And you talked about melting down the Lego and, and, and all of these things about we're talking about stuff eroding over time. I happen sure. to know that if you keep a Lego in your pockets for long enough, it will start rounding and it will start blending. And those little notches at the top that hold everything together will eventually, if you wait long enough, will eventually be fairly smooth. And um, I put this keychain on and I wear it and it's a reminder to me that, OK, by the time this thing is completely smooth, there's X, Y, and Z. I pegged it to some life goal, right? And I'm not going to go into all of that, but I pegged it to some life goal and said, okay, by the time this is smooth, that has to be in place. But I, I love that analogy because one, it relates personal, personally to me. And two, we have the ability now to think of our information services like that of, like, I've got 20 different Legos in front of me. They don't all have to wear out at the same time. One may wear out and I can focus on just fixing it. And then I realize another Lego piece isn't doing the job and I can build a better one that yep. fits my marketing funnel or fits my operations better. So are you really are you really telling me and I don't want to overpromise people. Are you really telling me that functions, these serverless functions are one part of looking towards a solution to these types of operational problems that we have in business? Yes, it can be depending upon what you're trying to do. But. A lot of the biggest functions, uh, the biggest selling points of functions are the quick time to spin up, 
deploy a new function very quickly, the scalability of it, the billing aspects of it, where you're only billed for the calls that you use. So if your server's sitting there idle all night and half of the day, you don't get charged anything because you're, you're, you're not invoking the functions. And then as soon as they start getting invoked, you get charged tenths of a cent. You know, <laughs> would it be feasible to run an entire website that way? No, of course it wouldn't. Uh, somebody did a proof of concept doing a single page app served through functions. You hit this for you hit this function that returns HTML. You hit this other function that returns JavaScript. I bet that could get I, out of hand very quickly, it, though. That's, yeah, it yeah. was a proof of concept. Yeah. I would not recommend it. Yeah. Yeah, and I definitely agree with that. I mean, but, uh, but I have seen lots of functions made to just wrap a database. If you're just saying go give me all the the cities or go give me all the scores or go give me all the weather. Do you really need to spin up a big web server and a big thing just to run a stored procedure on a database? No. So uh, there's a kind of a joke. Some people call them stored procedures as a service instead of functions as a service because uh-huh. some people design a lot of their functions just as a simple wrapper to a database. Well, I can understand that for reporting. I had a client that had a yeah. very old legacy text only. It's one of those everything is stored as text in the database. It's it's that old. And um, they Good had DB2. Yeah, older. They, um, I, I'm not going to. Fox Pro. Uh, I'd have to even look it up. I, that's why I can't say what it is. I'd have to look it up. But maybe off air, I'll tell you if I if I can find it. And it, I mean, we're talking like late 70s, 80s tech somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. And um, every time they had to build a report, they'd have to go in and do that. I'm thinking this could be a perfect use case for them. If they don't want to deprecate that old database, they could start writing functions to just say, look, every time we need this report generated, we can run it as a function. And that way we can modify it if we ever need to modify it rather than having to start from scratch and rewrite a whole new report. Yeah, it could be. So it, that's definitely a use case, but it's it's a small, simple chunks of code. This is not something that's going to be doing a ton of processing. It's not going to be doing a lot of a lot of work. It might be doing transformation. It might be doing uh, like relaying like, oh, I get this request. So I'm going to store it in a database and do this other thing. Uh, it might be, like I said, transformation. I get a image in and I do like thumbnail calculation on it or yeah. I do image analysis and say, oh, it's a dog or a cat, you know, it could be anything. I, I, I love it. And I don't want to rain on your parade here, but from, from the business side of it, I'm, I'm satisfied with this conversation. So I'm going to leave everything else to you, whatever that is, because I, I really feel like, you know, this is something where at this point, if I were working on a startup or with any type of project that has this type of it support, uh, the need for this it support behind it, this is a conversation I would be having with my developers tomorrow of, Look, what is it we actually need to accomplish and our functions are a way that we uh, should at least consider doing that. I I feel confident in that now. Yeah, right out the door. You can start with this and you can scale from a proof of concept to running a business on on functions. And you you might not need to spin up a whole bunch of servers. And, And that's an advantage. And that gives you mobility and agility in the industry. Also gives you less overhead. <laughs> yeah, gives you less overhead. You know, you might have less um, personnel costs, especially if. I mean, I'm not saying you don't need an admin ever, but when you're first starting out, 
No, and, and that's can, yeah, that's the key. We're not ta- I, I, really to be clear. I'm not talking about trying to reduce the IT staff at an existing operating business. I'm looking at what happens when um, you're trying to scale when you're in the scaling portion of growing your small business or startup. That's tough because the additional labor capital that typically needs to be put in, that's what can sometimes make or break a business. And if it's possible to not need an employee now so that we can afford to have 20 more later, I'd rather do that. I'd rather see that happen. Mm-hmm. So at this point, we've talked about a lot of the advantages, and I think we've mentioned quite a few of the um providers. Uh, There's a couple of libraries out there to help with it. There's a lot of tutorials and websites. I I would just say, have this conversation uh, with your developer. If if you have a developer uh, doing some custom work for you, most likely the platforms that you're looking at will support the languages you're you're most likely working on. Um, If you're working in some really strange language, um, I would ask why. (laughs) I'm working in Fortran. No, I'm just kidding. I'm Unless sure somebody- you're dealing with PDPs or some mainframe, I would maybe ask why. Yes, yeah, so, and I'm sure somebody out there is supporting that too, but I'll let it go. No, I, I think it's just good to have the conversation. It, it might not be for you, but it might be. And it might be a great way to test out some stuff. It's, it's definitely a journey to get from point A to point B. I mean, look, I don't think there's any way around it. If you're trying to build a, an Alexa skill or an equivalent skill for any of the other assistants that are out there if you're building a chatbot yes you can do these things on a server but where from what i understand where most of the market is going is to this serverless environment to these functions on the larger providers and on the cloud providers so some things are going to force you to go this way right if you want an alexa skill unless you're going to build out your own api your own web service you're going to be using aws lambda so some things will steer you here anyway But I feel like for the rest of us that aren't being forced here, um, not that that's a bad thing, that aren't being, I should say, chauffeured here (laughs) to this point and having to ask it already. I feel like um, at this point, we should probably have a pretty good understanding of at least what we'd want to talk to our developers about and how we could start thinking about how do I go beyond Squarespace and WordPress and and all of my marketing funnels and Google Analytics and say, I've got this piece of data over here. What can I process and do with it to make some big effect? I, I feel like I'm there. Good. Yeah. I've played around a little bit with the Alexa skill side of things. Um, I've done a lot more on the um, Azure functions and Logic Apps side of things. And it, it definitely has that if this, then that type of mentality and and a lot of the hey when a file gets uploaded when a row gets created when a, this happens go execute this function to do this thing massage the data this way and um, I, I've I've definitely going to keep looking at it for some of my personal little projects and 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 I'm definitely seeing interest in it at work uh, a lot of bigger companies are are really looking at functions. Uh, they don't want to have giant server forms all the time. Uh, microservices, functions, that they're all kind of looking that direction. I, I expect big things from this um, in the future. Well, that just prompted the, the last question I want to ask to conclude then. You mentioned microservice. Is that the same thing as a function or a serverless function? Uh, no, not always. Um, I, I think that you, you can do some aspects of, of serverless like some aspects of microservices you can do with functions, but microservices will usually 
sit in between virtual machines and functions. And so, so what, what might they do? The same thing. They'll handle requests, but they can run a little bit longer. You'll you'll they can scale, but you have to have like container hosts. Are they more uh, infrastructure in nature? Yeah, they're a little bit. OK, they're, they're like applications. Uh, I have a bunch of small applications versus a single function. So it's the evolution of well, not the evolution, but the hierarchy of at the smallest chunk of work, it'd be a function. The next biggest chunk of work would probably be like a microservice where it does a very dedicated thing uh, to like one domain. And by domain, I mean logical domain, like an account service, um, account microservice. All it does is accounts, nothing else, uh, like an order microservice. All it does is handle all the operations for ordering and nothing else. Um, and then if you kind of scale a little bit bigger, you have the old big applications that had methods and functions and, and endpoints and web pages to do all of that. It, it would handle accounts and ordering and, and, and serving up the, the catalog. It would do all of it in one big application. So th there's this hierarchy. That makes sense. Chris, thanks for joining me today. I feel like I have a really good grasp or I, listen, no, I'm not going to lie. I don't feel like I have a really good grasp on serverless functions, but I feel like I have a good enough grasp now that I can continue forward with the job I have to do. And I feel fairly confident that any business person in my shoes would be able to do the same types of things, have the conversations they need, start looking at the types of companies and the offerings that are out there and begin to wrap our brains around it. So, Chris, thank you so much. You're welcome. All right, everybody, that's our show. That's episode 104. Thank you so much for your time and thank you for listening. If you want to get in touch with us, email feedback at multinewmedia.com. I would love to get a listener question and comment show going over the next, you know, I don't know, 10 or 20 episodes. So please, please, please start emailing in. Let me know what you think of the show, what topics you're curious about, uh, what you'd like Chris or myself or Christopher or any of the show guests to answer something I'd really like to do in the future to bring you into the fold a little bit more and respect your time and say thank you for listening so that we can directly help you with your situation. Now, the show here, Multinumedia, is now available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, CastBox, Overcast, PocketCast, Podbean, and now iHeartRadio. So if you're sharing podcasts with anyone you work with or anyone you know who may be interested in Multinumedia, please feel free to let them know which of their favorite platforms the show is now available. Available on, And you can also get the link to any of those along with our direct RSS feed and a subscribe by email option from our website at multinewmedia.com. Before I go, the last thing I'd ask you to do is head over to iTunes. We're trying to do a little bit of a ratings drive here and see who's listening, see what you think of the show. If you wouldn't mind heading over to iTunes, whether that's your normal podcast market or not, and leave us a hopefully five-star review with a little bit of feedback. We'd love to read those here on air at the end of each show, but uh, I noticed the other day that even though we do have listeners and I see through the analytics that you are out there, again, thank you for your time, we would like to get in touch with you a little bit more see what you think of the show and get some feedback from you the way we're going to do that right now is through soliciting sorry have to solicit sometimes soliciting reviews through itunes so head over to itunes and leave us a review and rating and that will do it for this week so until next time take care Ladies and gentlemen, until next time. 
Take care.